Hello. Welcome back to the latest installment of the Red Fern Book Review. I am your host, Amy Mayer, and today we're going to look at two books. The first is a novel that focuses around climate change called Weather by Jenny Offal. The second is also a novel, and it's a prequel to The Great Gatsby, and it's written by Southern Gothic writer Michael Ferris Smith, and it's called Nick. But before we get started, I wanted to share with you some of the things that I am listening to and reading about right now. The first thing I want to share with you is a video texting app that I've been using throughout COVID, and it has been a literal godsend to me. It's brought me closer to old friends, and it's really helped me a lot. Uh, what it is, it's called Marco Polo, and it's just like the children's game that you may have played, or you probably played in the swimming pool as a kid. It's a call and answer app, and what it is, is you literally, it's the equivalent of texting, but over video. So you set it up, and you just send a little note, look into the screen, press play, and then say what you want, and then it sends to the people that you want. Or you can be in a little chat group, which I'm in a little chat group with a couple of friends. And then you go back and forth. But what's nice about it is it is like texting. So you can just give a little short snippet and then leave it. And what I have found is the hardest thing to be separated from people that you're close to is the small moments. And often you don't pick up the phone or get in touch with someone because you think, oh, there's so much I have to tell them. Or maybe in this case with COVID, there's not a lot you have to tell them. But what you can do here is you could just say, I'm on a walk, and then just show like 30 seconds of your walk. Or you could just say a little tiny thing, or you can say a really personal thing. And that's what I've been doing with some friends. And I recommend trying it out. I don't see the purpose of it if you live close by to someone or in the same town, same family. It just doesn't I don't think I would use it for that purpose, but if it's someone that lives far away, maybe in a different time zone that you can't see, I think it it might be a wonderful way to connect. Give it a try. And the second thing I want to mention is this uh, show that I'm obsessed with, and I'm thinking some of you are obsessed with it too, and it's called Stanley Tucci Searching for Italy. And the reason why I'm dropping this podcast today Sunday is because this is the day that the show airs, and I thought if you don't know about this show, you might want to head to your PVR and record it or tune in tonight. And tonight, he's going to Milan. But for those of you who uh, haven't been keeping up with Stanley Tucci, he's having a moment right now. Uh, Last year, he basically broke the internet after mixing a sexy Negroni in his house, Uh, for his wife. And, you know, he made this drink with gin, vermouth, Campari, and an orange peel, and people just loved it. So he's back. He's, he's, um, most people know who he is. He's a character actor. He's been around forever, and he's well-regarded. But what he's done is he has done 
this travel show on CNN. And it is clearly a replacement for the void that Anthony Bourdain left behind so sadly. And I know a lot of you, like myself, love that show. But what I really like about this is he's not copying Anthony Bourdain. He's filling the similar void, that need for travel, experiencing new things, uh, learning. But he he's a completely different person. He's a mannered, I would say a mannered Anthony Bourdain. He's a spiffy dresser. Um, he's, yeah, anyway. So this, um, I tuned in recently and watched him go to Rome. And it was, it was so great. He meets up with his old friend Claudia. And um, she's all cool with her short gray bob and her dark clothes and they meet for espresso and brioche buns filled with cream. He goes on later and has uh, spaghetti carbonara with guanciale, which is uh, basically a fancy bacon or Italian bacon, pecorino cheese, black pepper and eggs. And the show is great. He meets with historians and professors. It's educational, aspirational, it involves travel. Um, he goes at one point into the Jewish quarter in Rome, and you learn about the history there. And he has um, one of their del- delicacies, which is a deep-fried artichoke. To me, it looks a little bit like a deep-fried blooming onion from the outback, but it is apparently a delicacy and um, something to try. So check that out. So now on to our books. The first book I'm going to talk about is Weather uh, by Jenny Awful, and I'm really excited about this book. I enjoyed it very much, and I want to share it with you. She is the author of The Department of Speculation, and that book came out several years ago, and it was about the state of a marriage um, of a modern Brooklyn couple. And what it Uh, one accolades for or is known for is her very unusual writing style, which she tells stories in fragments and fragments that interconnect. And you kind of have to read it to experience it. Um, And I think you'll either love it or it will bug you, but um, I think you should try it. So this book is called Weather, and it's also about a Brooklyn couple. And it specifically focuses on Lizzie, um, who is a librarian, and she's worried about climate change, and but she's also worried about the humdrum of her everyday life. And her life on the face of it, or the way she uh, presents it in the novel, is it's kind of boring. But as a reader, it, it, it seems quite charming. And her her backstory is she's dropped out of a PhD program and she now works as a librarian at a city library. Her husband, Ben, works in IT. They have one son who um, is, you know, messy. He's young, messy, likes to play Minecraft, might have Legos splayed across their apartment. And she seems annoyed and also has a lot of love for him. And both the husband and wife have had career plans that probably their their careers have taken a different path than they originally had intended. 
um, she had dropped out of a creative writing program. Uh, concurrent to that, she has a brother, a drug addicted brother, who she's very close to and continues to help. Um, and the the thing that happens in this book, first of all, I should say, not a lot of things happen in this book, and that's what's interesting. I heard an interview with her, and she does not believe in having a big plot because she said life doesn't often have a plot. So what she tries to do is just show what happens in a day or or in a week or in months, and um, and it's not um, it's not the beginning or the end, but it's kind of what happens in the middle. And what does happen for her is she takes a job with an old college professor while still working as a librarian. And this professor has a climate change podcast called Hell or High Water. And this woman hires Lizzie to answer emails. So what you see is she is put face-to-face with climate change and climate change issues, but while she's juggling her day-to-day. And the author, clearly the goal is to get you to care about climate change, but she doesn't tell you that. She shows you that. And the way she shows you that is she literally just talks about the weather. She'll um, be at the library and all of a sudden be entranced by a bird sitting on a branch outside her window. Um, she talks about the emails that she receives. And the podcast attracts some religious extremists, which brings concerns to her. Um, you see near the end of the novel, uh, Donald Trump appears as in the book, but he's a nameless, faceless president in this book. But you know he's there. And she talks about this president's um, lack of interest or acknowledgement around climate change. So it's very current. She weaves in um, the positions of both the left and the right. And really, she's just trying to get you to, to think. But what really makes this book unique is the way, is her writing style. And it's, it's told in fragments. It's experimental, ethereal, it's rhythmic. And each paragraph is kind of like an, its own little independent world. And it it's very much the way I think, well, I don't know, I'm only in my head, I'm not in everyone else's head, but in my head, I think a lot of us bounce around with thoughts. We, we have a deep thought and then we think, oh, got to go get dinner or got to make dinner. Oh, got to walk the dog. Oh, and then, or you think about war or your child safety or and that's what this book is like so she kind of ping pongs around um and through that she'll throw in little quotes about climate change whether it's a statistic whether it's a quote from a book and really in the end this book I I believe I mean you can interpret it as you see it but I believe her emphasis is on her here and now Uh, is on her family, on her immediate family and the people that she loves. While she cares about climate change, I think that she, um, of course, is putting her family first and foremost. And in that, I believe she's turning the lens on the average reader um, who may care about climate change, but if it isn't in their direct backyard or the issue doesn't take place that they need to worry about today, their focus is on um, 
on their immediate, what's going on around them. And so in that, she's asking us to care. So I would check that out. Now, the second book is around The Great Gatsby. And this is, The Great Gatsby is just, if you haven't noticed, is just everywhere all of a sudden. And there's a few reasons for this. The first time um, The Great Gatsby came back into my view um, recently was last fall. My youngest son, Graham, is wrapping up high school. He's in his final year. And he told me on his syllabus, he's reading The Great Gatsby. And I thought, are you kidding me? Because that's what I read in my last year of high school. And so I was kind of wondering, what, why, could a, why is a novel so endearing after so much time? And is it that great? Or is it just, I don't know, the educators haven't made changes in the curriculum. I, I was curious. So I almost convinced Graham to come onto this podcast, and wouldn't that have been great? But I wasn't able to do it. But I did get... I did ask him this question about what he thought. And while he did like The Great Gatsby, he feels the reason why it's endured is because it's super heavy on symbolism and it's easy to talk about, to um, to teach, and to develop themes around. So that, that was kind of his take around it. And I kind of think I might agree with him. But what's happened is Concurrent to that happening that I saw, this was in his curriculum, um, I noticed there was a number of books coming out about The Great Gatsby, whether new editions. Um, actually, a writer um, contacted me and sent me uh, a copy of his new book. It's called Jay the Great, and the author is Benjamin Frost, and it's a, a modern-day take on The Great Gatsby, and it plays with race and sexuality, um, has some gender-bending things going on, and it's set in modern-day Boston. Um, but what I found out is the copyright on the novel has is ran out as of, I believe, January 1st of this year. And so what that does is it gives writers that might be interested in looking at The Great Gatsby more creative freedom to explore it um, because they have now have the ability to. So with that in mind, um, I picked up Nick by Michael Ferris Smith, and he is a Southern Gothic writer from Oxford, Mississippi, and this is his sixth novel. And what it is, is he takes the stance of, um, or the perspective of Nick Carraway, who is actually um, the narrator in The Great Gatsby, and he does a prequel and imagines this guy's backstory. So most of you know the story about The Great Gatsby and um, with Jay Gatsby in his mysterious big mansion in West Egg and the green light and overlooking his um, West Egg, which is the old money in the fancy part of town. And that's where his uh, unrequited love Daisy lives with her husband, Tom, and they're a train wreck and they're obsessed with money and um, wealth and they're superficial. And then there's this narrator, Nick, who comes from out of town and to make his money in, um, in banking. And 
so he is very much an outsider through this whole thing, and he narrates the novel. So this book imagines what was his life like before he landed um, in West Egg and outside of New York City. And so what this what this character happens with this character is it starts out at the end of World War One, and Nick is fighting on the front in Paris or in France, and he alternates on, he has time off and he comes into Paris and it's very much, you know, war-torn Paris where uh, the typical um, rules of engagement are, 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 lo- are off. And he falls in love with a peddler named Ella who wanders Montmartre and she sells uh, picture frames that she's made herself. And at night, she sleeps in an abandoned apartment stuffed with old dance hall dresses. And she has um, wine bottles uh, filled with candles that light up her room. And she's above, um, lives above an old theater. So they fall in love and you get the sense that he never would have fallen in love with her or perhaps noticed her had it not been for this this kind of time and space. And you feel that it's quite a doomed love. And so he kind of comes back and forth um, from the front. He's unsure about her, but yet he is in love with her. Um, and at one point when he goes back to the front, he asks to be put in the most dangerous position, which is underneath the ground as a listener or watcher for where the Germans are planting bombs. So he's kind of just, he he actually, some people to get put there, he asked to go there. And his commanding officers are like, seriously? But he, he wants that role. It's almost like he wants to punish himself. And he just keeps that observer role. And then it flashes back to his growing up. He grew up in a leafy area of Minnesota, um, he has a, in some ways, an idyllic life. His dad is a prosperous hardware store owner, and it's expected that he will take over that business. Um, he is an only child. He has his mom is a good mom, but she's also quite depressed, and so he has to live through that and has a lot of confusion around that. So anyway. Then this next part of the novel, uh, the war is over, and he's leaving. He ends up leaving France, and he's been called home by his parents. And he's on his way by train home, and I believe he's in Chicago. And he just says to himself, "You know what? I'm not going home. I'm going to go have an adventure." And Ella, his love back in France, had told him that she had been to New Orleans, and New Orleans as um, you know, is one of it still remains a very unique area of the United States with its own um, culture and traditions, and it seems otherworldly. Um, so he just hops a train the other way and heads to New Orleans, and then he ends up in a very seedy area of New Orleans and gets caught up in brothels, vendettas, bars. Um, he ends up. Uh, hooking up with a fellow veteran who has a very sad backstory. His name is Judah. And he's come home to his wife who has um, taken a, a bar that he owned and turned it into a brothel. So he's kind of dealing with that. So this book, what I would say about it is it's very, um, 
I really like, I liked it, but what I wanted was I wanted more of a connection to The Great Gatsby itself. So that's where I would say, um, if you're going into it thinking that you're going to get a lot about The Great Gatsby, you're not, but the book stands on its own. Like it could, it could be published without, in my opinion, a reference to The Great Gatsby. And when it concludes, there definitely is a connection uh, to where the beginning of The Great Gatsby starts. So that's what I have to say today. And I wanted to thank you for joining me. And uh, be sure to, yeah, tune in to Stanley Tucci and let me know what you think. You can reach out to me on Instagram at The Red Fern Book Review um, or find me on Facebook. And I, I would love to hear your feedback. Thanks so much. And I'll talk to you next time.